case you were away last week, we are in the second sermon of a series about, I don't know, there's five or six of them, something like that. We're in number two. It's about the church that God wants, not the church that you and I want. The first one was about the church God wants is a church where everybody's experienced a new birth. That means they've begun, they may not there yet, but they've begun to think differently about life, about people, and about yourself. You've begun to think from God's perspective rather than your own perspective. Today, I want us to talk about the church God wants where love abounds. Now, I don't know whether you recognize it or not, but when uh, Ethan read the scripture for today, there is a profound biblical truth that we all need to hear. This isn't the only place we hear it, but it is here in this passage of scripture I want you to listen for it, see if you can identify what is the profound, fundamental truth in this piece of Scripture. Listen to it once again. This is the third chapter of 1 John. No, this is the fourth chapter of 1 John, excuse me, and verse 7. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, when you have the word K-N-O-W-S in the Bible, it is not an academic knowledge. It is not, I know math. And two by two times two is four. That's not what it's talking about. Knowing in the Bible is an experiential experience. Experiential something that happens to us. I have used two times two is four so many times in my life. And I've discovered that it works. I've experienced it. It wasn't just a head knowledge. I know. When I go to the store and something's $2 and I buy two of them, I know exactly how much it's going to be and so does the clerk. We agree. My experience tells me that's true. So when you read about knowing something in the Bible, it's not talking about head knowledge. It's talking about experiential knowledge. So here it is. Whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only and one son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, 
God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The profound truth here in 1 John 4 is that if I am able to love other people, it has little to do with the other person. In fact, it has nothing to do with the other person. It has to do with what's inside of me. If I can't find a way to love another person, and I say I'm a believer, the first thing I need to do is look inside here. Not there, or there, or there. It doesn't matter how unlovely the other person is. That doesn't determine my love for them. My ability to love another person depends on God's work in me. And if I don't know God, I cannot love another person. Now, those of you who are of younger years may not know that the Bible talks about love in a lot of different ways. You and I only have one word. The Greeks have several words for love. And the word that love used here is God's kind of love. It's not the kind of love I have for a friend. It's not the kind of love I have for my parents. It's not the kind of love I have for my sister or my brother. It's not the kind of love I have for my spouse. It's not the kind of love I have for the world in general. Agape love is the kind of love that God showed to me. That's the kind of love it's talking about. So let's be clear about the kind of love we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about some kind of an emotional feeling. We're not talking about some kind of warm place in our body. We're talking about God's love for me and how it was expressed. And therefore, I ought to be expressing that kind of love in the body of Christ. And when that kind of love abounds, we'll find we are more like God wants us to be than we've ever been before. Now, I want to suggest there are three things Three behaviors, three attitudes, three things that we need to do in order to manifest or show this kind of love. You may know by now that I'm a fairly practical person. I try not to talk in big theological terms or ideological stuff that goes over our head and, and we can't make good sense of it. I want it to come down to where we live and that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. But the very foundation of it starts with understanding the fundamental biblical truth that I cannot love another person until I've experienced God's love in my life. And if I have trouble loving another person, the problem is not that other person. The problem is me. Every time. Every time. It never fails that it's me that's the problem when it comes to not loving another person. 
It is not the other person's problem. It's not the other person's behavior. It's not the other person's attitude. It is right here in my heart where the problem is. Now, they may have their own problems. That's their issue. That's not mine. My job is to love them no matter who they are, what they are, how they behave. Love them like God loves them. That's my job as a believer, and that's your job as a believer. And we're going to talk about how we can do that, I think, in three practical ways. Now, one of the things that you're going to understand pretty quick is that as I talk about these three qualities, you're going to identify in Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church that that's already happening. Praise God, it is happening. My concern is that it happens among every person who comes in this place. Not just some. But we're going to recognize, you're going to think this morning, when I talk about this, that's already happening. Praise God for it. But remember, that needs to extend to every, every person that's a part of this congregation, part of this community. The first behavior I want to talk about is acceptance. Most of our communication happens to be silent. You're aware of that. When I greet Mike and say, Mike, shake his hand and look him in the eye and say, Mike, I'm glad you're here today. I hope you have a good time of worship. Because I shook his hand, because I looked him in the eye and spoke to him in some kind of a reasonable tone, I think he felt accepted at that moment. Tony comes in. I say, Tony, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, Mike, how are you? When I turn away from Tony to speak to my better buddy, Mike, what does that do to Tony? That's rejection. And I'll guarantee you he'll feel it. I don't care how good Tony is. He'll feel that rejection. He might not hate me for it, but he'll feel that rejection. It doesn't take much to show acceptance or rejection. We must show our acceptance of people. If you send a staring glance at somebody, they know right off they have been rejected for that behavior. Right off. So we have to be careful about who we stare at, who we glare at, Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, whenever. We send a message. When we uh, talk about, you know, I, I don't know why. Uh, who can I pick on today? Who, uh, move on to somebody else. Why do those children uh, dress like they dress? Why don't they wear more stuff that's appropriate for Sunday? Why, why don't so-and-so's children behave a little better? They, they, 
It's like they don't know they're in church. Those little snippets never fail to get back to where you intended them to be. You don't think anybody heard you say that, but I promise you somebody did, and it gets back to mama, it gets back to child, and they feel rejection rather than acceptance. You didn't intend that, I'm sure. You just intended to offer some instruction, something that would be helpful. Well, you didn't. All you did was offer rejection. And you need to be sensitive to that. Think before you talk. You know, the Jews had a problem with acceptance of the Gentiles. Now, if you're not familiar with who Jews and Gentiles were, the Jews were one group of people and the Gentiles were everybody else in the world. It didn't matter where they were, who they were. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And the Jews had trouble with Gentiles and accepting them. That came into the church. When the church started, it was all Jews who became Christians. Shortly thereafter, the Gentiles began to come into the church, and there were some problems. A Roman centurion in the 10th chapter of Acts had a dream, and the dream said, go down from Caesarea where you are, down to where Simon Peter lives, and invite him to come to your house and bring some word to you. Well, the servants, you know, they did what the centurion said. They went down there, two days walk down there. They got Simon Peter. Well, while they were on their way walking, Simon Peter had a dream. And in that dream, Simon Peter was revealed to Simon Peter that the Gentiles who received Christ are just as welcome, should be just as accepted in the life and fellowship of the church as the Jews. So the centurion guys come. They get Simon Peter. He says, okay, I'm ready to go. They go two days, two days walk up to Caesarea, go to the centurion's house. Peter shares the gospel with this Gentile group of people. He and his household accept Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes on that household just like it did at Pentecost. Well, you can imagine what news traveled pretty fast about that. Peter goes to Jerusalem to tell them about this so that the leaders of the church who were in Jerusalem at that time could give their stamp of approval. And sure enough, they did. Well, at least then they did. It wasn't always that easy. But they gave the official acceptance of the Gentiles into a Jewish culture that had now become Christian. That happened. Now, they agreed with God that the Gentile is just as worthy to be in our fellowship as Jews. Now, you and I don't have the same kind of problems that Jews and Gentiles had way back yonder. We have our own. Our job to accept people is to agree with God that all people, all people, no matter what their color, no matter what their culture, no matter what their education, no matter what their economic status is, all people who come to this place and say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, are accepted 
as people who are in the kingdom of God, just like you and I are. They are to be accepted. Now, acceptance is a good thing, but it only gives us entrance into the building. Acceptance is a good thing, but it only gives us membership in God's family. Acceptance gives us, it's okay to join the choir. It's okay to join the Sunday school class. It's okay to join any group. It's okay to do that when we accept people. But acceptance does not take us where love abounds. It only starts. It only opens the door. It's not enough for us to give people acceptance. After that, it's sink or swim. I've seen that not just in this congregation. I've seen that in lots of congregations. We accept you just like you are. I know you don't look like us. You don't smell like us. You don't talk like us. You're not as rich as we are. You're not as poor as we are. You're not whatever. We accept you, but you're on your own. If you want to join a group, go ahead. We're not going to do anything about it. Acceptance only opens the door. It does not take us to a place where love abounds. The second thing that we need to do is learn how to include people. Acceptance, one. Inclusion, number two. Listen to this story from Luke. He's talking about the early believers. He says... In the second chapter of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every believer was included. You remember when Paul was converted, he was not accepted, nor was he included in any church building or any church group. People were still afraid of him. A buddy of his, Barnabas, vouched for him. That led to his acceptance and his inclusion. We need to learn how to do the same kind of things. It's not enough for us just to come here. We need to be included in the life of the church and in the life of our fellowship. Sunday school is where a great deal of our pastoral care is actually accomplished. There's more pastoral care that goes on in small groups all over this congregation and all over most every congregation that handles most pastoral care needs. Whether you're in a Sunday school group or a choir group or a work group or a prayer group or a weekday Bible study group, that's where... Your inclusion in that. Now, we think you know that you can join any group you want. 
But what if you're never invited, sincerely invited to join a group? Then you don't know. You're really included in the life of a congregation. We need to give more attention to that. This is both, a, this is a two-edged sword. PG is full of family connections. Now, this isn't the only place in the world that's like that. It's not the only church in the world that's like that. PG is full of family connections by blood and by marriage. Therefore, the good thing is everybody's got a place. You got a place in, in that family network. And you never think about what a new person feels like when they come to PG and they don't have family already here. When Joyce and I were away from home, we didn't have family. We didn't have anybody to take care of our babies when they were sick. No family to call. No grandma, no grandpa, no aunt, no uncle, no cousin. Nobody. We were on our own. It felt quite different from how you feel when all you got to do is call a brother or sister or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa, and they're there to take care of your family. My little kids, they're taken care of because that's here. So it's hard for you to think about how to include other people, and I want you to do some more thinking about that. The first church Joyce and I ever served in a little community outside of Birmingham, Alabama, Joyce was isolated because nobody ever said, come go with me to get a cup of coffee, to have lunch, to go shopping, to do anything. Because it was like PG in that everybody was family. They didn't have any idea what it meant to include somebody else. They didn't think about it. I'm going to tell you something that happened to Joyce and I when we came to Pleasant Garden. 25 years ago or so. We, uh, we didn't have anybody invite us into their home. I want to tell you that there's one family that invited us into their home more than once. One family in PG. Now, we're not mad about that. We're just sad about that because the culture here somehow doesn't pay much attention to that. Ethan tells me it's getting better. I don't know whether he's lying or not, but he tells me it's getting better. But it's true. When we invited people to our home, Sunday school classes came to our home, the only comment other than thank you, we, they, people were gracious and thank you for coming, the comment that came to me that I thought was interesting was, We've never had any experience of coming to our pastor's home. I don't, I don't get that. But it was normal for you not to, as it was normal for us not to come to your home by invitation. 
We don't know why. We're not mad. It was just sad because it was something we thought we missed and that you missed not having us. That's all. Until you include people not only in your religious life, but your social life, they really don't feel included in the body of Christ. And because there's so much family connection here, I think you have to work harder than most people on that issue. And that's my opinion. You can do what you want to with it. Now, another thing that helps inclusion is that we need to discover what it is people enjoy doing and invite them to do that with us. Now, I don't care whether it's fishing or shopping. It doesn't matter. Now, everybody can't know every new person that comes into the church family. I, I understand that. Uh, Dickie and Brenda can't host everybody that comes in to the church. I understand that. But Dickie and Brenda can find one new couple that came into the church and talk to them and find out what they enjoy in life. And they don't enjoy that. But they could say, well, uh, Mike and Linda really uh, enjoy that. So they go talk to Mike and Linda and Mike and Linda by Dickie's help, includes them in something that they enjoy. So they have a possible friendship connection. You know, does that make sense to you? This inclusion business is really practical. And when you're from the outside, when you're an outsider coming in, you don't feel included until somebody invites you to be a part of their life, both church life and social life. Now that happens. We've got uh, Tommy Henley. Tommy, don't you organize the mission group stuff? Yeah, I, 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 he, he's not the only one. He's just a, a point person. What if he never invited a new person to join them? What if that group never invited a new person to join them. They would not feel included in that. But what if this person that's not being invited is just waiting for somebody? I got a hammer. Would somebody just invite me to use it? Until they feel that inclusion by being invited to join, they don't feel the bountiful love that we want them to feel. So it's this inclusion that helps us feel more love. So once we've accepted people and once we've included people, there's yet a third thing to do, and that's to encourage people. In Ephesians... Chapter 4, Paul instructs the church with these words. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. Now, last Wednesday night, we had a Bible study together. It was about the paralytic who uh, couldn't find his way down into the pool to get healed, and Jesus came and healed him. And the application was, what is it that our church needs? What is it that's a barrier to our church's healing? That means me moving more and more toward what God wants us to be. That was the idea. One group said to all the other groups that were there, gossip is a real problem in our community. And all three groups acknowledged that was true. One group had that as a response to their questions. But everybody said it was true. Discouragement, not encouragement, is generated by gossip. Paul knew that in his day. You and I know that in our day by our own experience. I hope Paul's teaching of this lesson will help all of us move forward toward a church that abounds with love because words matter. Paul tells the church in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians how important it is for us to recognize and encourage one another in sharing our gifts. Now, the gifts that are listed in the Bible are just suggestions. They're just examples. They're not 16. These are the only gifts of the Spirit that God gives. But they're examples. So there's lots of gifts out there that aren't, quote, named precisely in Scripture. So we need to find ways to encourage people in using these gifts. Paul says that we all have a gift to give. It's like being one body. And everything in that body needs to function together for it to do right, for it to do its best. Even those parts that are unseemly, Paul says. So no matter what a person's gift is, our job is to encourage that person to exercise their gift or to encourage the person by saying, thank you for exercising your gift. We need to pay attention to people and how their gifts are used in the life of the church or in the life of the community. And we need to be intentional about saying thank you for using your gift to serve the church, to serve the community. Your gift of encouragement was really helpful to me last week, or whatever it is. I really thank you for being a good class secretary, for keeping good records. It's really helpful to us. Simple things, not complex things. And we need to encourage one another so that they know somebody else recognizes that need and they're encouraged in it. Many of us serve without ever being able to identify 
a specific gift that we think God has given us. We just, we, just don't, we just don't cultivate a head like that. We don't think about that. We just do. And so it's on our, everybody else's responsibility to say to that person, thank you for sharing that gift with us in the life of our church. And when they do, they begin to feel love in ways that you cannot imagine. Words of encouragement matter. And those are the words that people need to hear most often. Not words of discouragement. I also think it's interesting that here in chapter 12, Paul lays out this elaborate teaching on gifts. And when he goes to chapter 13, what does he say? He says, now I want to show you a more acceptable way. A more, oh, a more excellent way, actually, is what he says. A more excellent way. And you all know chapter 13 is about... Chapter 13 is about love. Paul says, Now I want you to encourage one another in your gifts. But if you don't love one another, it ain't worth spit. Now that's really what he says. It just comes out in different words in the Bible. He said, I don't care how theologically correct you think you are. If you can't love another person, your theological correctness ain't worth spit. What Paul says now, I'm telling you. That's my translation, but that's what he says. He says, I don't care how many dollars you give. I don't care how many hours you give. I don't care how, what talents you give. If you don't love people, it ain't worth spit. That's what he says. There is nothing that preempts love when it comes to showing how God has worked in your life to other people. People don't care how smart you are. People like that you're smart. People don't care how many Bible verses you can quote. They're glad you know the Bible. They want to know how deeply do you love. And if you accept people, if you include people, and you encourage people, you're going to find that this place abounds in love like it never has. Remind you, I told you in the beginning, some of this stuff is already happening right here in this place. And we are grateful for it. But I'm also telling you, I know that it doesn't get to everybody in this place. And that's the key to building the church that God really wants. That love abounds in every corner, in every person, no matter how despicable they are. 
I'm telling you, no matter how despicable they are, we need to find a way to love them. And if we can't find a way to love them by inclusion, acceptance, and encouragement, the problem is right here in your heart. Or as the Bible would say, right here in your heart, in the gut. That's, that's, that's what the Bible says. The problem is in your gut, where all the feelings of your emotion collect. And the problem is there. And it's with you, not with them. So, I just ask you, find a way to be intentional about letting love abound in every person that's a part of this congregation. Let them know they're accepted. Make sure they're included. And make sure they're encouraged. Well, you just think about your children. Tommy's got a whole slew of them. And they're beautiful. But what happens if he doesn't encourage them? What if, what if he's always putting them down? What if he's always complaining about them? They're growing up different than what he wants. They have to learn how to love their children by encouraging them, not by discouraging them. It's no different as the family of God grows more God-like. We have to learn how to encourage one another and not discourage one another.